let's go ahead and uh, grab a seat and we will get started. Good morning, everyone. Good morning to all of you on the, the live stream. Uh, great to be gathered together with you this morning uh, and excited to continue in our series. If you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians 2, verse 8, uh, as we continue in our fall series called Witness, uh, in which we explore what it looks like to be a vibrant and effective church in the midst of our post-Christian culture. Uh, if you're new or you missed last week, we are uh, currently taking some time to study the culture that we live in as any missionary would. And we're going to use these words from Paul to frame our next few weeks of study. These are Paul's words to the church in Colossians 2 verse 8. Uh, it says this, see to it, uh, that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Let's pray. Lord, as we uh, launch into today and into the next few weeks, as we uh, examine um, even some of the idols of our culture, some of the uh, hollow and deceptive philosophy uh, that is so loud right now in our post-Christian secular context, uh, Lord, I pray that you would bring freedom in this place, uh, that we would be able to identify where we've bought into the, the thinking uh, behaving, believing of the world instead of relying on Christ. Uh, and so as we wade into some potentially difficult topics in the weeks to come, I just pray for a sense of your spirit, uh, just helping us, guiding us through, and ultimately would you usher us into greater and greater degrees of freedom in Christ, we pray. Amen. Up until uh, recent years, uh, interest in politics reached an incredible low in our country. Uh, through parts of the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, there were a few outstanding events, which many of you remember, but the general sense was that it doesn't really matter. Everything is sort of progressing toward utopia. Society will sort of get to where it's headed one way or another. Progress is inevitable, was sort of the general sense, regardless of who is in office along the way. And so if you look back through some of those decades, uh, politics appeared to be sort of middle ground, uh, sort of moderate in many ways. Oh wow, my tax rate might change by 2%. Or uh, wow, this new candidate has a different theory about how to stimulate the agricultural sector of the economy, or, or whatever it is, sort of this, yeah, that just sounds really boring. Like, I, ju I just don't really care. I don't see how that affects me. Politics didn't seem to matter. But in the background, you had this progression happening, which we explored last week, in which America was shifting from a Christian culture, which we'll define in a moment, to a post-Christian secular culture, uh, which says, in effect, uh, throw off all authority, all tradition, and all commitments, because life is about me and my pleasure. On the left, they say, get your laws off my body. 
On the right, they say, get your laws off my business. But they're coming at things from this mindset. In either case, just let me live my life and let me pursue my own pleasure. In the post-Christian secular framework, there is little to no cultural awareness of God. There is no purpose. There is no meaning. There is no compelling story to live. It's just you and your impulses. But human beings cannot truly function without meaning, purpose, and a story to live. So where do we go from there? Where do we look for meaning, purpose, and a story to live? Well, almost predictably, in stage three, we turn to the political religions. Here, we find meaning, we find purpose, we find a story to live, a battle to fight, an identity to be found. Uh, And in fact, in the cultural absence of God, politics becomes our only means of reaching cultural utopia. It becomes our central driving force to reach a better world. And hence, on the secular side, politics went from not mattering much at all to now being, quote, a matter of life and death. Because politics is now central to meaning, to purpose, to hope in the secular West. And now more than ever, it seems easy to slip into increasingly entrenched division. If you roll back the clock to the 60s, less than 5% of Americans said that marrying someone from the opposite political party might cause issues. A Democrat marries a Republican, over 95% of Americans said, yeah, that's not a big deal. Shouldn't really affect anything. Fast forward to 2020, and over 50% of Americans think that's a bad idea, and nearly 60% of those who identify with the political party express active hatred toward the other party. That's over 10 times what it was in the 60s. And just to put this into perspective, during those same decades, attitudes on interracial marriage have shifted the other way from nearly 60% disapproval down into the single digits and dropping. So if you're entering an interracial marriage, like the one that my wife and I entered into, not a big deal in our day and age. But... If you're entering an interpolitical marriage, people on the right and the left are saying that's a bad idea. You can't live with someone, you can't be bonded to someone from the opposite political party, lest you defile yourself. That is heresy within the political religions. And as people turn to politics for meaning, for purpose, for identity, the gulf between left and right is getting wider and wider. And I think we saw that in the latest presidential election, which almost everyone can agree was a disaster. We now live in a world in which right and left cannot be in the same room 
to discuss their differences. It was incoherent. And to make matters worse, you've got all sorts of profound online forces throwing fuel on the fire and driving even greater division, even greater misunderstanding. So you have all of those uh, sort of forces playing out on the secular side over the last few decades. And then you have the story of the church. As the culture has moved from Christian to post-Christian, the church has felt this painful decline as the once fertile soil has dried up, as our uh, cultural favor has been evaporating. But as it fades in the rearview mirror, the huge question now facing the church is, how do we respond to losing power? How should we react to this loss of cultural influence, which started in the 70s and has continued right through to today? We all sense the ground shifting beneath our feet. We see our nation becoming increasingly secular. We see the Christian perspective and Christian voice being marginalized. Even if we've never heard the term post-Christian before, we, we see it, we sense it happening. So what do we do? Well, naturally... We are turning to politics as a means of extending or even regaining our lost cultural influence. And so we wed ourselves to the right or the left in hopes that it will extend our power, that it will extend our influence, that it will help us to maintain some form of cultural weight. We are willing to wed ourselves to the left and even uh, redefine Christian definitions uh, of marriage and gender in order to be accepted there. And we say to ourselves, this will make us relevant again. Uh, this will show the world that we're up to date with the times. Uh, that we can function in their vision of utopia. And, and so we compromise to avoid cultural pressure to extend our cultural favor. It's too painful to just sit back and watch it slip away. But we make similar mistakes when we jump in bed with the right. We say, hey, it, it's more conservative here. There's less pressure to conform on issues of marriage and sex and gender as there is on the left. But the right in our country is increasingly alt-right. And in recent years, we've seen this strange journey from patriotic, which had some issues, to nationalistic, which is even more self-centered, to this weird place today in which it's flirting with white nationalism and white supremacy. And you have neo-Nazis marching in the name of the right, chanting the German phrase, blood and soil, which is a throwback to the Nazi movement. This is not your grandfather's Republican Party. It's something new 
It's something different. It's not the moral high road of the Republican 80s and 90s. What we see now is the surprising, I would say counterintuitive, rise of the alt-right, full of voices and ideologies that we cannot condone. And if you've been on the right for a while, this is a disorienting change over the last few years. So the church is at a strange crossroads politically, where no matter who you choose to support, we risk compromising kingdom vision. I think it's worth stating that the kingdom of God is a political vision. It has everything to say about how we govern ourselves as human beings in a broken world. But the strange thing is that we've entered into this weird moment in which we feel like we're forced to affirm some kingdom values while denying others. For example, uh, the kingdom of God has everything to do with racial and ethnic equality. It has everything to do with caring for the poor, the widow, and the orphan. It has everything to do with honoring the refugee and the foreigner among you. It has everything to do with honoring human life, born and unborn, and, and cherishing the uniqueness of what it means to be God's image bearers, protecting those who cannot protect themselves. It affirms the goodness of creation and our call to care for all that God has entrusted to us. It affirms the goodness of marriage as a God-given lifelong covenant between one man and one woman, which is the only context in which we're to experience sexual intimacy. And we could go on and on and on with, with a kingdom vision for the world. But now we've entered into a weird world in which I cannot affirm a pure kingdom vision. I have to choose. If you care about the poor, the orphan, and the refugee, well then, you're probably a Democrat. You should probably go join them. Oh, you care about unborn children or biblical marriage, well you should join that team over there. That's where you belong. But as we do that, we compromise a pure kingdom vision and we allow secular political parties to dictate what our new values are. And there's a sense in which our political parties are doing a better job at making disciples than the church. They are experts at shaping and forming us into their image. At, at getting you to adopt their values as one complete package. Oh, you care about unborn life? Well, then come wear this jersey. But oh, by the way, now that you're wearing this jersey, there's some new rules that I have to tell you about. You're not allowed to talk about the poor and the refugee. We don't care about that. You can't talk about creation care and future generations. You can't talk about racial and ethnic equality. None of those are a big deal. And you're on our team now. 
This is what we stand for. This is what we believe in. And the exact same thing happens on the left. You jump on that train because you care about kingdom justice and equality. But the train doesn't stop there. It keeps going. And it takes you to places that you really don't want to go. And all of a sudden, you're signing off on all sorts of crazy stuff that flies in the face of the kingdom of God and the kingdom vision for sex and gender and marriage and intimacy and personal morality. But that's okay. You're on our team now. This is what we believe in. Those things aren't a big deal. Stay silent on those issues. And all of a sudden, we're sort of hijacked by the political narratives of our day. And our witness to the culture becomes compromised. Our our hope actually begins to shift from Jesus and his inbreaking kingdom and the Holy Spirit to human actors on political stages. That's where our hope lies. And we can no longer stand for a pure kingdom vision. Instead, we choose flawed teams and we pretend our team isn't flawed. We justify its dark side as we descend into the political religions. And now you've got division in the church. You've got red churches and blue churches. You've got political fanatics attempting to reform their churches instead of Jesus fanatics attempting to reform their political parties. That's how you know they've won, by the way. The kingdom was meant to challenge and reshape your political party, not the other way around. Don't call your kingdom community to conform to your politics. Call your political party to conform to the kingdom. But that's not what we do. Because we've been taken captive by political narratives. And you can just hear Paul whispering in the background, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition rather than on Christ. Oops. Sorry, Jesus. I think too often we have been taken captive. And we've been told what to think and what to value and what to believe and who to trust and who not to trust by political parties instead of Jesus. Someone in Washington, D.C. actually now tells us which kingdom values to cling to and which ones to reject. We need a better way. We can't just conform to the right or the left. 
Because to pledge your full allegiance to those narratives is to compromise kingdom vision. I don't care who you vote for. I don't care if you vote at all. I don't care if you're excited about politics. I don't care if you hate it. If you engage or if you withdraw, that's up to you. But if you follow Jesus in this moment that we're living in, you will not be left enough for the left and you will not be right enough for the right. And that's new and it's okay. We are called to live out a third way, a kingdom way, which includes the following. If you're taking notes, a few thoughts as we close. The kingdom way means that we seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness above everything else. Keep kingdom and discipleship primary and and politics secondary or worse. I don't care if you go door to door endorsing a candidate. I don't care if you stand on the corner with election signs. As long as you have a biblical basis for your choice and you are more excited about the kingdom of God than you are about your political party. If that's true, then go for it. But we are unwilling to worship politics over the God of the universe. Number two, maintain with clarity that Jesus is your hope and the one steering creation to a fitting end. Let your witness to the world be to the greatness of Jesus above and beyond any party politics or partisan message. The world needs to hear our witness about the greatness of Jesus. And number three, operate in radical unity within the church. When we look at the life of Jesus, we see him defying political categories of his day, offending both left and right. And in fact, Jesus unites left and right in their joint hatred of his political ideology and his refusal to endorse their political agenda. At one point, Jerusalem is packed for a festival. It's the final year, or final week, sorry, of Jesus' life on earth. It's packed with a festival as conservative Jews from around the ancient world come to celebrate their past liberation from Egypt and yearn for their future liberation from the liberal Roman oppressors. Tension is at a boiling point and someone comes to trap Jesus with a question. Jesus, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? A harmless question in our eyes. But what they're really asking is, whose political agenda do you endorse? The liberal Roman oppressor 
or the conservative Jews fighting for freedom, dreaming of a military Messiah who will lead them in taking up arms, to throw off the oppressor, to establish a literal, physical, political kingdom of God on earth through their nation state. We have two competing political agendas. Jesus, whose agenda do you support? Which side are you on? Are you a liberal or are you conservative? The crowds are ready to explode. Revolution is in the air. The Roman centurions are watching. Everyone leans in. The tension in the air is thick. Who's he going to endorse? And Jesus replies, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Wait, wait, what? I'm sorry, what did he say? Uh, Which team is he on? Is he for us or is he against us? I mean, what a confounding answer. And what you see in the life of Jesus is that he offended the right and the left and he united the right and the left. First, he offended the right and the left so deeply that in the end, they partnered together to execute him. He actually united them in their joint hatred of his political vision. He offended them both, as he does today. Are we willing to follow him into that place? Are we willing to risk offending right and left in our pursuit of the kingdom of God? And finally, as we close, through his death, burial, and resurrection, he united the right and the left. Paul says that Jesus tore down the dividing wall of hostility and made the two one. He took Jew and Gentile and made them one new humanity. And we see this powerfully at work in the ancient world. Jew and Gentile could not have been more politically divided, but they come together in Christ. And this becomes central to their witness in the world. It actually becomes proof that Jesus is back from the dead. Thousands across the ancient world were drawn into the Jesus movement because they had to know how could Jew and Gentile possibly be in the same building, let alone worshiping side by side the same God? Nowhere else in the ancient world was this taking place in any context. And and it drew people in. It was witness as they came together in radical unity. It was shocking. It literally drew a crowd. Even among the 12 disciples, you see this unlikely unity. 
Two of his disciples were Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. One of them in bed with Rome, taxing Israel on behalf of the oppressor, and the other a zealot, carrying a weapon under his coat, waiting for the call to violent revolution. Politically, these two men could not be further apart. One was prepared to stab the other. And yet in Christ, they are united. They are one. Brothers and sisters, I won't tell you who to vote for. I won't tell you whether or not to vote at all. But I will tell you this. We will not sink into the political religions. We will not be hijacked by political narratives. We will not choose flawed teams and pretend that they aren't flawed. We will not compromise our kingdom vision. And we will be one. Our goal is to operate in such radical unity that the only explanation is that Jesus is back from the dead. Vote. Don't vote. I honestly don't care. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and be prepared to operate in radical unity in Christ. If you're doing those things, the rest is fine. We'll end with this. Jesus' prayer over His disciples. Keep in mind that as He prays this, He's praying over zealots and tax collectors at the same time in a hotly divided world. I pray for them, Jesus says. I am not praying for the world but for those you have given me, for they are yours. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world with all of its craziness, with all of its tension. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Let's pray. Father, I come this morning, we come first and foremost with a heart of repentance. God, I, I pray that your spirit would um, convict us and lead us to repentance in the ways in which we haven't operated in and for your kingdom. In, into the ways that, that we've been hijacked by some of the narratives. In the ways that we've been trained to hate. In the ways that we've been trained to mistrust. As the way, in the ways that we've been trained to divide.
we invite you into this place to do that challenging work, to show us where we've compromised kingdom vision, where we've taken things that you've said are important, where we've taken things that you've said are central to your kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven, and and we've thrown them aside. We've cast them into the gutter because we were told to cast them into the gutter. Because we're told that, that, no, no, when you wear this jersey, this is what we do. We don't care about those things. God, may we care about what you care about. And if that risks offending the left and the right, then so be it. If that makes us social outcasts who don't fit in anywhere, then so be it. We join a beautiful legacy of people following you on the margins of society, rejected by the mainstream. We will follow you there, Jesus. But may we be unwilling to compromise the fullness of the kingdom. We want it all, Lord. So as we navigate these challenging times together, Lord, I pray that we would seek you, seek your presence, seek your kingdom, seek transformation in you above everything else. I pray that our vision would be pure, that our witness would be pure, that our radical and diverse unity would be on display in the church. God, you're back from the dead. And and the world seems to have forgotten. At least the secular West, Lord, help them to remember again. May we be witnesses to that reality. Lord, this is just one area of many areas where we can fall victim, where we can be captive uh, to hollow and deceptive philosophy. Lord, free us with the truth. We want to know you. We want to love you. We want to follow you no matter the cost. So that's how we come, Lord. With a posture of surrender, with the posture of repentance, with a posture of wanting to learn and grow and expand our kingdom vision. We worship you now. I pray that as we worship you, would you keep setting us free to be your people in the world, unhindered, without falling victim, without falling captive. Lord, set us free. In Jesus' name. Amen.